and really want to talk about a couple of things tonight and is really designing practices and then how we, we teach in practices. And then I want to pick up on something that I think is really relevant at the moment is, is how we keep players engaged during, during the shutdown with home play and then actually post once football reopens because that's where we can really harness the, the power of play um, and get them involved and lots of technique-based execution work. What I want to cover tonight is really look at, first of all, the, the difference between, between technique and skill and set the foundation about it. And then we'll look at how, how junior players learn um, and, and bring some research that I know through my own coaching experience, through my education, and then others that I've been involved with in, in coaching roles around the games really harnessed my own thoughts on, on how players will learn and then how we structure practices on a training night. And then I said, we'll finish off with some uh, examples of, of what we can do and how we really can engage that player to continue their practice outside of formal football environment. So really what we're looking at tonight, if we refer to the professional coach model, we're really harnessing in on that training area and, the, and our football knowledge. But tonight we're actually going to, I'm going to label it coaching knowledge because it's about how the knowledge that we have and the practices that we use. We're really looking at that training and how we create that environment of training that replicates the match. And if we're doing that, we can expect as the player to be able to transfer the learning between the two. Um, so the first one I want to talk about is a building block methodology. Because I think it's important that football, is, it's a complex game. And again, research will show it takes players about 10 years to master. So how do we go from someone who's a novice to somebody to turn someone into towards being becoming an expert? And it's got to be a step-by-step -step phased approach. And I think the biggest thing we must do when we're looking at our approach is take the player's age and their development cycle in, into account. It's got to be a staged approach. So again, if we want to develop a player and a novice, there's got to be simplified situations before complex ones. We've got to start on individual skills before we even touch on team tactics. And then we've got to prepare them for football development before physical preparation. So we're in really developing that technical foundation. And each block, we've got to have a clear focus and distinguishable factors about what we're focusing on. And it's from gradual mastery towards game progress. And and then we've got to think of it as a holistic approach. So it's not separate age blocks, but rather stages that will integrate in towards each other. Okay, so they, there's a flow-on effect from one stage into the next. And so I thought it was prevalent to, to talk about, well, what do FIFA see? Uh, and they very much see it the same. There's a stage-building block approach to player development. Starting off with a player when they first enter our game, five or six, but it's physical literacy. It's actually just about players moving. As they move through into maybe seven or eight, we're talking about individual capacity and then relation capacity and that, you know, that eight to 12 age window. As they move through into youth football, we're talking functional capacity, how they apply the functional game skills in a team setting. And then it's about the team capacity, how the team operate as a whole, before it's now, it's about learning to perform, learning to win before they get around to 17, 18 years of age where winning is what is important. And I think what you'll find is the FIFA development stages align 
naturally to what we have for the FFA phases development. And what we're really going to touch on tonight is how do we engage that player who's in the discovery and in the skill acquisition phase. So really harnessing the, the power of junior football. So in that discovery phase, it's about falling in love with the game and discovering the game and falling in love with fun. And if fun has a football context, over time they'll fall in love with football. And it's just about exciting, enjoyable and stimulating games where they get lots of contact on the ball, loads of encouragement, and there's little or no coaching interventions. Then we move through into to skill acquisition, which we know research shows is the golden years of, of motor learning. And it's the optimal time to focus on developing football skills. But we need to make sure our environments replicate the context of the game. And so these are the areas, the two phases of development that we're going to hone in on tonight. As I mentioned before, it's about holistic development. Now, traditionally, coaches have tended to see the, the four categories here uh, as separable. So actually, they work in isolation. So when we're working on physical, it's isolated away from technical, tactical, and mental. And same with all the other the, the four sections. But what we need, we want to apply a holistic view and make sure that we understand that each component is distinguishable, but they're not separable because they'll have an impact on each other. And that a physical constraint will have an impact on somebody's technical ability. Same with somebody if, if they've been in a game, they're not 12 years of age or 11 years of age, they're a winger, they've got the ball, and they've tried to beat their man three times, one v one, and it's not worked, and the coach has shouted at them on the side to stop giving the ball away. Well, that's going to have an impact on the player's confidence, which is then going to impact on what the player does the next time they receive the ball. And if we're looking at a holistic view, we're looking at perception, division, decision, and execution. And we're talking about this needs to be evident in every session. And we're going to focus on one of the corners per session, but there should still remain, and we might focus on that more, but there'll still remain learning across the other three because it's a holistic approach. And we're looking at the whole person. We're not just looking at them as a footballer. So you want to get to know the, the player as the person themselves and take an interest in, in their lives outside of football. So that sort of should give us some, con some context about what we're going to talk tonight and sort of some of the key themes that we'll, we'll run through the presentation. So the next part, I think it's, it's important that we distinguish between what skill and what's a technique and then how actually sometimes I think I feel there's almost a, a misnomer between what we focus on in training. Yes, when we turn up to training, we need to maximise the amount of time that we have working with the players as a, as a whole group. And that's when later on we'll talk about home play when the players by themselves, how we can really hone in to, to work on the technical aspects. But the, the, they have a relationship and they're very much interdependent on each other. So I thought it was important to, before we start talking about football skills and football techniques, we have to understand the context from which they sit. So actually research shows that if we wanted to develop sport-specific skills, players need to have the fundamental movement patterns and they need to be able to have this as a solid foundation. And when we talk about fundamental movement patterns, it's the body's way to coordinate in forward motion, lateral motion, transferring the weight, moving up and down. And it's the fundamental movement patterns, and especially in our sport, 
which we need to use the upper and lower body to move the ball and objects around ourselves. So this is where we have to start with the journey. So we have to start developing, first of all, developing fundamental movement patterns. Once we've developed that, we can then start on fundamental skills. And these can fall into three particular categories. We've got locomotor skills, which are all skills that are involved running, jumping, hopping, rolling, leaping and dodging. So all the skills and the physical factors that allow a player to move around the football pitch. Then you've got your manipulative skills, which is kicking and striking the ball, trapping and dribbling, and throwing, catching and rolling. And then stability skills of balance, twisting, turning and bending. So actually, after we develop fundamental movement patterns, which will then we can start developing the fundamental skills. And then once players have these two as a solid foundation, we can then start working on sports-specific skills on top. And children in the primary school, these are the fundamental skills that they need to, that they need to be able to have acquired. And the ones that really kicking, vertical jumping, leaping and dodging are related to football. Yeah. And then the next stage is we can start working on our sports-specific skills. If we start at the top with football skills, cricket skills, whatever sports they play, we're missing out on the foundation. And we know if we build a house, we finish with the, the top of the house and all the fancy decorations, the house is likely to fall over because it doesn't have a solid foundation. And that's the same approach when we're looking at motor skills development. So what's technique? So we can look at football technique as the execution. It's the execution of the football action. And we know that there's a variety of different football actions in, in our game. And it's, we know that technique, it's the basis or the basic building blocks for football and the football action. So it's all the way that we move the ball, we receive the ball, yeah, uh, we gain the ball, or we, we support our teammates off the ball. And generally these practices are non-opposed and can move into semi-opposed activities where maybe there is a limited opposition and limited pressure. Well, the difference with skill, this is where we need to use the perceptual system. So we need to perceive a picture. We need to see a football picture. We then need to decide what we're going to do and how we're going to apply a specific football technique. And then once we've done that, we've seen the picture, we've decided what te we're gonna, the technique we're going to use, then we're going to execute our football action. And then that will tell us whether we've been successful with our outcome or unsuccessful. And because we need opposition for this, we need opposition to perceive and decide before we can execute. It's all about the ability to quickly execute an effective action for our situation. So applying the effective technique given the picture we see in front of us. And given that, because we require opposition, our semi-opposed activities, or we can move through to fully opposed, where there's direct pressure with the player on the ball. And it operates in a continuum. So our job on a coaching night is to move players from technical practices to skill practices. And that becomes the craft as the coach. And as we get more experience with the coach, we know when to progress, and challenge our players, and we need also know when the challenge is too high and we need to know and regress the practice, and especially around the, the use of opposition and pressure. 
So a technique practice, because they're isolated, they, they don't have opposition players, they're delivered in a, what we call a closed or a consistent environment where it doesn't change. The environment stays the same. So a bit like myself when I go down to the golf driving range, the environment that I'm within is pretty stable and it's the same. So these practices are very much blocked by nature and there's high repetition of the various techniques in an isolated context related to our core skills. So the different techniques available to striking the ball or our first touch when we're receiving the ball. As we talked about before, a skill practice makes use of opposition to apply pressure. So it's externally influenced as the opposition is influencing the actions of the player on the ball. And they're also, their presence is the ones that externally pace the practice. So the speed of the practice can be uh, correlated to the, the amount of pressure from the opposition. Because these practices are more game-based, they're very random and variable, so the pitch is always changing. And if the pitch is always changing and there's direct pressure being applied, it replicates the game environment. And there's able to transfer learning from a skill practice into a skill game because you're bringing match-based pitches to life. And it's all about the players applying different techniques to different relative scenarios. They've got to find the example of what they see in front of them, select the technique, and then adapt that technique to get an outcome. But they don't happen, as don't, we don't suddenly go from technical practices to skill practices. There's actually an area in between where there's a gray area, the, the two will cross over because we can use even a technique practice, we can use limited pressure to have a low level of perception, decision, and execution. And that's what I was talking about before. That's where it's our really our craft as a coach is to know what our players need and when we need to move them from a technique practice into a skill practice and vice versa. So we can slide down the continuum depending on what the player needs because it's based on the challenge that they have in front of them and the success which we see within the practice. So what we sometimes get good at as coaches is we introduce a technique practice in isolation and we spend time helping reinforce and repeating our, our football actions and our football techniques. And then what we do is we go straight into a skill activity where a player now has to reform that technique under pressure. And so it's like the, the game that you would have all played in here on the screen here is piggy in the middle. Where actually, if I have the ball, I've got direct pressure with a defender in front of me. So we've put them and taken them from an environment without any pressure into an environment often with full pressure. And the, the jump's too big. The player can't apply because the, they can become overwhelmed. And so what we do is we, we skip out a step along the way. And that step is we have is interference. So imagine now there's two pairs with the ball each and they're transferring the ball between one another and there's one defender in the middle who can defend either ball. And in this situation, one group's going to have direct pressure and one of the groups is going to have passive pressure. And that's introducing the concept of interference. So a moving obstacle means that there's decision-making available, but the players aren't under direct pressure or constant pressure. But they're still having to perceive, decide, and execute in relation to the defender's position, 
they're not under that pressure being applied from, from the defender. And then intermittently, the defender will change focus, change position, and, and change, change footballs. And so at times, there'll be some of the, the pairs will be under a direct opponent, which now means they are under pressure to select and execute the correct technique. And if we can create an environment where they're under pressure and then they're not under pressure, that's how we can take them from technique activities through to skill activities and layer the learning. It's also important that during junior football years, they have repetition of the football actions, both in a technique setting and also a skill setting. So what we need to do, we need high repetitions that relate to the game. Now, if we want to relate it to the game, more often than not, can we have these, the repetition of these football actions in a variable and random environment where the pitches are always changing and there's a football picture for the player to perceive? If we're doing that, our practices are starting to take game-based realities and bring them to life at training, which then the player can apply, complete, or work out how to action at training, and the football picture on the weekend in their game will be very similar, and they can transfer the learning between the two. And then it's got to be the right challenge point. So we've got to manipulate the area size, the opposition size, and the amount of pressure to, to depend on the, the level of success and the challenge that the player is having. So if we're using random variable practices, it's not drill-based learning. It's not two lines of players passing the ball between each other. It could be players and pairs moving around an area where other players can get in the way and create a level of interference. Because it's got to be, an, if we want to use PD&E, it's got to be an ever-changing picture. So they're making fresh set of decisions every time about what the picture looks like, what technique they need to apply, and how they're going to execute. And then if it's got a game-based setting, they're now able to make match-based decisions at practice that they'll use on a Saturday or Sunday in their game. So they've seen the picture before, they know how to solve the problem. And then for me, one of the biggest ones, and this is where that's the really the skill as the coach, is making sure the challenge point is at the right level. Do we need to regress them back and remove opposition to take it more back to a technical-based activity? Or do they have a sound understanding we need to now challenge them and increase the level of opposition, the level of pressure, to have, make sure they're really executing in a skill-based practice? And it's about finding the right, the right level. So again, the challenge isn't too low, it's not too high, it's just right. And if we're doing this, especially if we're using random variable practices, which replicate match-based decisions and replicate uh, scenarios of the game, and the challenge point is right, we're gonna end up with repetition of our football actions without repetition. So we're still actioning, but it's a fresh set of decisions every time. So we actually, it might be striking the ball, but we're using more than one way to strike the ball. It might be with the laces, then it might be the inside of the foot, the outside of the foot, or it might be a chipped pass. So we're replicating the action of striking the ball, but lots of different variations of it. And it's about this. It's about finding situations where players can get high repetition of game-related scenarios. 
So it's not the isolated practice of dribbling through the cones where we get low repetitions and it's not game related. It's the one that, you know, I've used as a coach and experienced as a player where, yes, now we're sort of getting some repetitions and high repetitions of striking the ball, but it's got no game-related scenarios. Or can we find examples where players are working in small numbers where they can actually have some level of opposition, which we can manipulate between how much we use a defensive overload or an attacking overload to bring to life a football scenario where there is PD&E. Well, we know that actually the best thing that we can put them in is a game, but we know if we're playing a 7v7 or a 9v9 game at training, the, the chance for them to execute our selected core skill or football action, because it's a game, will be lower. So it's about finding the right balance for the players that you're working with and their aging stage of development. And wherever possible, we want to try and focus to create environments that replicate scenarios the players are going to face in the game. And again, as I've mentioned before, that becomes that's the, the craft of us as a coach, recognising how to change the level of pressure that a player is under by the number of opposition players involved in the practice. So what I want to do is then now focus before we open up to questions about how players learn. So I think the first one is we've got to recognise that every player is an individual and they all come from a different background. And at times within our football environment, there's going to be players in each of the, the different three groups. There's going to be some that are striving to keep up with what you're doing. There's going to be a large group that are co coping and there's going to be a group that are striving ahead. And our job as the coach is to make sure we satisfy the players in each of those three groups. And we know that these are some of the things that will guide a player's development. So we know in, in our context where economics plays a big part, and especially because a lot of our programs in, in football are pay to play. There's social and cultural differences. You know, we've got some religions that Sundays are the day for the family and the day for church, but often football games are placed on a Sunday, which means maybe they miss out. There's experience. There's just how long they've been involved in the game. And that can change often depending on, on birth order. So again, if you're the oldest or the youngest child, that will change your experience within football. There's also friend environments with the experience. So I look back on my younger years, I came from a football family and at primary school, all my friends came from a football family. And we played football at school. We had rugby posts, but nobody played rugby. Most of the people at our school played, played football. And so we were accumulating a number of additional football hours every day just by being at school because of, was it luck? That just happened to be all my friends played football. And we know that there's around birth order, there's things around the relative age effect. And we know that there's studies that show players often born in the, the first quarter of the year are often selected into talent development programs. And it can be often based that they potentially have often eight to 10 to 12 months physical development advantage on other players. 
And it comes back to the motivation and the drivers, the players. Were you like me and like my friends when we were at school that really loved the game and played in our spare time and just wanted to develop and wanted to learn? But we know that sometimes in football that there are players that will come into our game and maybe it's because the parents think it's time to have, they want them involvement. And we have sometimes every now and again players involved in football that give parents free time. So we really need to motivate and engage and ignite the passion for everybody that we're working with. We've got to understand that skill learning is non-linear. And this is what people, people think learning is, in football is like learning in the alphabet. So if we learn to read and write, you know, we will start off by learning our alphabet, then learning to read in books with simple language to more complex language as we grow. It's quite a linear journey. And there's definitely steps along the way that we can see being achieved. But school learning in football is different. It's a messy journey. Football is very chaotic, which we have to embrace. And it's because there's, there's the use of the perceptual system because we have to interpret information in our environment to be able to execute skill. So there's information that needs to be perceived by the player. And we've got to embrace the confusion. We've got to embrace the chaos. And if we do so, we know that, that mistakes are going to happen. And there has to be mistakes for learning to occur, especially in a football scenario. That players are going to perceive the picture. They're going to decide what to do, but they may not be able to execute yet. But it's working for them so that in the future they can. And if we see mistakes, as a limit to a player's progress, that actually we can, uh, we can stifle their creativity. So we know that coaching and skill learning in football is, is not linear. And so what I want to show now is on a training night, how we can use the concept of a constraint-led approach really to harness learning for our players so it becomes self-directed, they're in charge. And we can do that by these things around the environment will change how the practice operates. There's individual factors which will around physical and mental factors that can constrain how a practice may operate as well. And then as the, the coach, here's where really we can manipulate the area that the activity is taking place in to really bring a core skill or a scenario of the core skill to life. So we can increase and change pitch sizes and areas of space. We can use constraints or rules to focus in on a particular football action and how it's applied. We can use the attacking and defending ratio, so overload or underloads, to change the, the challenge point for the player. And we can use point system to really bring the football actions and the core skills to life that we want the players to focus on but it's very much based on what does the player see in the practice and putting them into a situation which has a game context and they're perceiving the picture and then deciding what football action they need to perform. So what I want to do now is play a video uh, which can explain the constraints of that approach much better than, than I can. So we'll just click through and, and we'll allow that to play. In this video, We'll compare an isolated activity with a constraints-based activity. 
using the theory of affordances to underpin our justification. Just so we're all on the same page, isolated activities are activities or drills repeated within an environment where there is limited solutions and are explicitly taught. We give players the how. Constraint-based activities, activities designed through the manipulation of environmental, individual and task constraints to develop implicit emergent behaviours. Here is an example of an isolated ball mastery activity using cones and poles as points of reference for movement. In this activity, players have been asked to dribble the ball around the poles without hitting the cones. The aim is to get it around all poles as quickly as possible. Players have been given explicit instruction to keep the ball close by taking a touch every step and to only use the right foot. Ultimately, what we can see is players perceiving and acting with reference to the poles and cones and also the explicit instruction given by the coach, both things which are never present in the game. Here is an example of a constraints-based ball mastery activity using an opposition player as a point of reference. In this activity, players are split into two roles. One person is a tagger and the other a runner. The aim of the runner is to avoid getting tagged for 15 seconds. The aim of the tagger is to tag the runner. Both players must be in possession of a football. The environmental and individual constraints stay the same. The task constraints have been manipulated. The size of the playing field, the number of players, the limited use of goals, and both players having a ball, along with the rule change of not being able to tackle and rather having to tag. One key to the motor learning theory that we have discussed is affordances. These are opportunities for action within the environment. Importantly, the learning is in finding these opportunities for action or becoming attuned to affordances. In the isolated activity, the environment players are placed in is static. We have a bunch of cones which do not change. The players have been given explicit instruction to only use the right foot and to take a touch every step. Opportunities for action change slightly, but because the environment isn't dynamic in nature, there is a limited need to search, limiting the use of the perceptual system and ultimately limiting the amount of learning opportunities. In the constraints-based activity, the environment players are placed in is dynamic. There is a tagger present that acts as pressure. Players are given freedom to use any type of ball control, and you can see different uses of the foot, different size touches, different body positions, and even varying uses of speed. They are constantly searching for opportunities within the environment to act. The perceptual system is highly active as the players move away or towards their opponent. Ultimately, the point of this video is to provide justification for constraints-based learning. The key point is providing players with opportunities for the high use of the perceptual system through a need to attune to affordances within the environment. I hope this video was informative. Please let us know if you have any feedback and thank you for watching. So again, a really good explanation about how we use the constraints-led approach to change the environment that the player was in. So even if we're focused on a more of a technical practice, can we still use a level of interference that still brings the perceptual decision execution cycle alive? And it might just be that players are moving between each other, 
And if they're doing a, a striking the ball, passing activity, it's actually looking for other players in the way, deciding when to strike, how to strike, and the pace of the ball when they're striking it. So if we've got our players in a training night, I think the first one that we need to consider is how players learn and then also the approach that we use to stimulate the self-driven learning. So many of you will be familiar with our coaching continuum and it depends, are we at the coach-centred end or are we at the player-centred end? Now, neither's wrong because in their own context, they both have advantages. But again, it's finding a way to use the coaching continuum to empower the player to put the player in situations where they're in control of their learning and they take ownership for it. So at the coach-centered end, this is where the coach has the authority. And they kind of look at it as that they have all the football knowledge and they're just going to pour it into the players that they work with. And typically, the coach here is the one that makes the decisions and tells the player what to do and is very prescriptive and direct in nature. If we want to take a step forward towards being more player-centered, here's now where we might sell an idea to the player. That we give them some information and we say, this is why you want to use it in this situation. But with both tell and sell, the coach is the one who's in control of the learning and the players are just actioning. And there's no ownership or creativity on the player's behalf. Now, these two, they may lead to short-term success. The players may action quickly. But again, research shows if we're down the coach center the end and being descriptive and telling players or selling ideas to players, that they'll perform the action, but it may not be learned. And what I mean by that is they may be able to start actioning straight away. But if we came back to that same football picture, in two weeks, three weeks, or even four weeks' time, they're almost back to where they were at the start. And research shows, though, if we use a player-centered approach where we really engage the player and give them the ownership to create their own learning, it will take longer, but they own it, and it becomes learned behavior as opposed to performed behavior. Now, if we want to really use a player-centered approach, it's now where we're we're sharing ideas or we're sharing situations with players, we're posing them questions and we're inviting suggestions on which the final decision's made. Or if we want to go right down the end where we're 100% player-centered coaching, is we just put a situation or bring a situation alive in a practice, we define some limits and we just pose problems for our players to solve. And again, they get to choose how they do it and we might just help with some feedback along the way. So again, if we're using down the player-centered end, we're sharing situations, inviting suggestions, or allowing the player to give things a go, really harnessing the, the power of creativity, and we're placing the player at the center of the learning. We have to be also mindful of the learning system that junior players in primary schools will, will now experience. We're actually, the schools now use a student-centered approach where players and students are given the freedom to go explore and find the answers themselves. It's no longer maybe how we went to school where the teachers stand up the front of the classroom, put notes on board that we copied down. So we've got to make sure when they come into a football setting that we're replicating a learning style uh, that they're used to. Otherwise, 
it's potentially going to be conflicting and the players will find it challenging. And I think around with our own approach, it's how we, how we look at it and how we gauge the mindset of the player. And again, research shows that a growth mindset is a characteristic of many, many top performers in many, in sport and in other uh, facets of life. That's because they look at things, at skills as hard work, that challenges are things to be overcome, that they require effort, and that feedback is powerful to help them improve, and that setbacks as just situations which prompt, I need to work harder. And I think with sometimes with junior players, we need to really emphasize that we need to praise the effort, not the talent, to praise the effort, not the outcome. And that we can really transform our abilities through application. And that challenges are learning opportunities, they're not threats. And I think you know, when you're talking about our junior player, we can change and help try and help the junior player's mindset change. But sometimes we have to make sure we're helping the, the parent also understand the mindset they were trying to uh, develop. So we have to bring them on the learning journey with us because you might have to shift the parent from a fixed mindset into, and take them on a journey into a growth mindset as well as the player. So that's sort of what I want to cover for, for the first part of the presentation. And uh, now I'll open it up to questions that you have about the difference in skill and technique and how we can use and influence that continuum on a training night still make sure we're using, even if we're doing technical activities, we're using a level of interference or about how junior players learn. So, uh, question firstly from Andrew Campbell, which we might have answered, uh, another panellist might have answered, what is uh, your definition of relational capacity, Alec? So, I, I would look at it between, it's the relationship and if we're talking skill acquisition phase, it's the relationship between me and you, how I help you keep the ball or how I help you win the ball. And that, that's the way I would look at it. Yeah, is that? Yep. Is that similar? Similar answer to what was in the chat? Uh, yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah, and again, I think that's, and we know in the, in the, if we say the discovery phase where players are eye-centric, uh, uh, when players start getting into the, the, the skill acquisition phase, that's where we can start that relationship between it's me and you, but we're not going to the, the, the concept where it's me and you and the rest of the team. So it's bringing it and honing it in on just the player on the ball and maybe next to the ball. Okay, so from Paul Edwards, a bit of a statement first, but uh, so if you just uh, hang out to the end of the question. Yep. You've described a very complex process. Often we have our young players being coached by inexperienced coaches who do not have this knowledge. Yep. Um, DFB research, coaches vital for player retention, only 40% of grassroots coaches with any training. Uh, yep. ANVB research, average of four years lifespan for coaches. So, yep. Yeah, I think uh, coaching is very complex and there's, there's many um, facets and layers to it. Um, and, I, and I know that, you know, a lot of people and a lot of volunteer coaches in, in junior football are people that often will put up their hand um, when nobody asks for them. And so I think that's where, from an education point of view, from a, a club TD point of view, that's where we've got to give coaches resources to get them started and then try and take them on a, on a journey along the way. So 
you know, when we first start coaching, we were very much a copy coach. We just, uh, we can be given something and we can copy it and we can put it into action, but we need to have a little bit of understanding about what we're doing and why we're doing it. And as coaches get more experienced over time, that's where they can become creative uh, and they can start designing their own practices and bringing their own flavour to the practice. Thanks, Alec. Uh, Ace, could you please come off mute to ask your question? Yes. Um, hi, Alec. Hi, uh, Thanks. Just a question on physical literacy. Yeah. We know it's a, a holistic concept. Yeah. I just want to know how do you go about implementing and teaching physical literacy uh, on your coach education courses? Yeah, so I think it's about, uh, it'll come up and you'll see, I'll talk about it shortly, so I don't want to give too much away, but I think it's about uh, creating environments, especially for players in the discovery phase, and then even when players go into in the skill acquisition, where we're, we're using running and chasing games, um, because I've, I've, at a previous role, spent time where I've gone out and delivered football programs in primary schools, um, and there's players now that can't do things or students that well, they can run forward, but you ask them to turn and run backwards and they'll fall over. Um, and there's a lot of research that shows that because of uh, a more of a sedentary lifestyle, the fundamental skills aren't as developing in the current generation as, as they are maybe in previous generations. So maybe we've got to take it and we've got to integrate some of the activity into our practices. Thank you. Uh, Ian Greener, could you, Ian, could you come off? And you had a couple of statements uh, as well as one question, please. Okay. Really enjoying your chat, Alec, and thanks very much for your time. Really good. I started my coaching career in the mid-70s, so I've gone through many, many decades and many changes in the coach education. But something that's always stuck in my mind, it came from a textbook from the course I did at Durham University. Uh, I think it was Barbara Knapp, Skill in Sport. And her definition, which has always stuck with me, is with regards to technique and, and skill. Skill is the application of the right technique at the right time. Would you say that still stands up in today's coaching method, uh, methodology? Uh, so could you just repeat that again? All right. Skill is the application of the right technique at the right time. Yeah, or the that, correct technique yeah. at the correct yeah. time. Yeah, Would you say that that still yeah. stands up? Yeah, 100%. I think it's about the player seeing a, seeing a football picture and going, this is how, this is the technique I'm going to use, and then find a way to get the outcome. Now, if that's a, a shot on goal and they think the best way is to use their toe and they get the outcome over time and they get repeat success, well, then that is skill. It might not be textbook, but it is, it is skill. Um, so, yeah, it's finding the right technique to use in a given situation. And I think it comes back to, it comes to the outcome. Do they get the do they get the ball from where it needs to be where it needs to go? So yeah, hundred percent agree. All right, glad I've been doing the right thing for the last fifty years. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Some of the stuff we talk about is uh, it's not new. All right, thanks, Alec. Uh, Alec, a question from Harry on Facebook. Uh, do you think we are playing enough games and doing enough training in the UK? They're playing for eighty-minute games and training ten to twelve hours a week. Uh, so again, something I'll touch on, obviously there's a, a difference um, in so maybe the level of training between here and this part of the world and, and more established football nations. Um, but there was, a, there was an article, I think I, I might have been one of the Optus Sport articles that are up on Facebook at the moment where I think actually in that discovery and skill acquisition phase, there's not too much difference between a player in this part of the world to a player in the UK or other parts of Europe. I think it's that youth development phase 
that we really get a, a, a big gap in disparity. Thank you. And one other question from Harry on Facebook. One-on-one -on -one training is very popular with players and parents. Should we embrace that? I think if you know why you're using it, one v one training is gonna is gonna add additional football hours to somebody's somebody's development week. Um, but don't expect it to. If it's just technique based only, don't expect it to have uh, a large transfer to the game. But anytime we have additional football hours, it's always going to be a benefit. But we know that. Our, our sport, it's random variable, the pitch is always changing, so we've got to have players as much as we can in an environment which they're exposed to that. Um, and that's, that's what we've got to make most of our use of our time on a training night. So yeah, you use it, but it's not the only tool that you need to be using, if that makes sense. Uh, thanks, Alec. Question from Jared Moore. How do you yep. develop coaches to be comfortable with the organised chaos in the constraints-led approach? I think it's, it's experience, it's been able to deliver it, and I think it's embracing the challenge and not being worried that things don't look perfect, that mistakes are going to happen and that it's part of it. And I think sometimes coaches will go into isolated technical practices, especially when they're, when they're a novice and they're a beginner coach, because it looks neat and tidy, but the game's not neat and tidy. So, yeah, just embrace it. Football's messy and training's going to be messy. And especially when they're learning, they're going to make mistakes. Thank you. Question, follow-up question from Andrew Campbell. Um, Alec, it might be a subject for another night, but have you any knowledge of the gamification of training, i.e. training structured like a computer games with levels and superpowers? Uh, it's not something I've done a lot of re research in, but I think it's that, that content's about how kids, they, they want instant feedback. And I think... Uh, I've touched on it uh, before. It's about, you know, if you take uh, a drive and you go down to the local s skate park, kids teach themselves skateboarding tricks. And I think it's, a, it's about an, empowering that ownership. And I think with skateboarding, they find out very successfully whether they've achieved it or not. And if they don't, it hurts. And that sort of spurs on the learning. I mean, same with computer games. They get to see their progress and it's quite immediate. Um, and they get to problem solve and they get to take ownership of their own learning. So and I think it's something that, that, you know, you can definitely research, but kids want to see progression and they want that feedback that they are progressing as well. From Justin Gargula, how do you deal with the varying ability of the kids within a team? I worry the kids with less ability are getting left behind, but also the better kids are being held back. Yeah, and again, it's, it's something that I think every coach comes across um, and experiences, and I think it's the, it's the way to manipulate a practice so there's multiple challenge levels within the same practice. So you set a practice where the player gets to choose their, their, their challenge level. So uh, I'm trying to think of a way that it, well, I might be able to explain it. So there might be a way that if they choose the harder option, it's worth more points. But there's an easier option, which they can at least get some points. And it might be that the players, they'll choose the easy option, and once they have success and confidence builds, that they choose the, 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 the medium option and then go into the harder option. So it's, it's about creating an environment where their player gets to choose their own challenge point, and that becomes, that becomes the skill as, as a coach. And it's, 
And that's something that takes time to develop. But it's multiple challenge points within one practice. Question for Mayor in Spain, and welcome. Um, I hope I'm interpreting your question right. When you talk about skills and interference, you are talking about the presence of an opponent. Yep. What, is, what is then the Australian concept of tactics? So I don't know, for, for me, tactics is what we teach in the, in the youth the youth phase, um, and then that's how units will operate together and then operate with, with, with other units. And it's about working on the key tactical principles of the game. Um, I'm looking at interferences. It's a way to have passive pressure within your practice uh, just simply by um, either having limited, very limited opposition or just players moving through each other. So they still have a picture to perceive and which is changing. And I've got uh, some decisions to make before they execute. So if we look at so the difference between skill and technique, and we've looked at you know how we operate as a coach and the environment we create to, to bring player learning to life, and then what does what does the practice look like on on training night? So I think this was uh, one of the questions that that came up uh, was about well we make sure that our players actually need to have the fundamental movement patterns and the fundamental skills before we even start looking at football skills because. If children are able and unable to perform them, then we can't teach them football skills and we can't put them into uh, a complex setting. Um, and if people are on here that joined in a couple of weeks ago when uh, when Sean Douglas presented, there was a there was a, a statement that from research that Sean brought to life was that I'm, I'm, hopefully I get it right. There was something to do with the top five physical or top five students in a class now with the physical factors would have been sort of in the bottom 5% of uh, previous generations were at school, which is a scary thought because this, the sedentary lifestyle that children are now leading compared to, to the previous with more screen time means that they are exposed to less formal play, which means that at times we're going to have to make more of a conscious effort to get maybe some of the movements that we did informally and spent time practicing with for, informal play into more of a formal setting. And so what I want to bring the concept alive is that, well, actually in the discovery phase, we want to set the kids up for a lifelong participation in football. So actually we're going to have to spend some time developing the fundamental movement patterns and the fundamental skills. And then as they develop and move through into the skill acquisition phase, we can continually refine our fundamental movement skills and build the football skills on top. Because like I said at the start of the presentation, it's like building a house. You've got to start off with fundamental movement patterns and fundamental skills as your foundation. Because if the foundation isn't strong, the football skills that we build in, in top are going to be vulnerable. So what I want to do is just start off with you know, looking at the discovery phase. Because we know this is where players just need to simply be put into situations where they get to experience and discover the game through trial and error. And it's just learning to play football by being involved in football-related games. But here, the, the kids fall in love with fun first. We want to make sure that has a football context. There's no coaching. It's just let them play. And it's trying to re recreate that, that street or that park football environment that, we, that maybe that has existed in the past or definitely in other uh, areas 
of the footballing world. And it's just got to be about that. Building the love of the game and, and really igniting that ignition that football's for them. And as I said before, I think the first thing that kids fall in love with is just having fun. And if it's got a football context, they'll over time fall in love with our game and then stay in our game. And it's really the concept is just let them play and let the game be the teacher. I think there's also something to think about. Well, we know a lot of players that will come into football in our discovery phase won't always stay in football, that they may move into other sports. They might try AFL, rugby, netball, hockey. Some may come back, but some may stay within those other sports. So we've got to think about it. Are we setting the player up for a lifelong live of physical activity, a lifelong love of sport? And we've got to make sure we're starting the base for whatever sport they go and play. But if we fall in love with fun and fall in love with football, hopefully they remain involved with the global game. I mean, no players are very self-centered at this age. It's all about them. They're very eye-centric and they don't understand the concept of teamwork. So as much as we can get in the under sevens, we can try and get them to spread out to play to each other. Actually, cognitively, they don't get the concept of spatial awareness and they don't grasp the concept of teamwork. And for those that have players within this age, you know, when you talk to them, everything's about them. They're the center of their own little world. And we've got to embrace that. And so if it's, if it's about them, get activities where they've got the ball and base it on ball manipulation. And then on a training night, we want to set these fundamental movement patterns and fundamental skills, lay that foundation. So at the beginning, just simply play running and tagging games. Start off without a ball and then you can include a ball over time. But it's all about tagging or relay activities where we start really enhancing that player's agility, balance, coordination, speed, which is some of those fundamental movement patterns that they need to explore and develop uh, during childhood. Then in the middle, we're going to have some short, fun, variety of activities, which we really want to make sure we're engaging the imagination because we all know that, you know, five, six, seven, eight-year-olds have fantastic imaginations. So really use activities to engage that. And just relate these fun activities to some of our key football actions. And especially it's about them and them on the ball. So dribbling, passing and shooting. And we know that players' attention spans are short. So we just make sure we need to variety these activities on a regular basis. We'd all have them with that. It's them and the relationship between them and the ball. And then when we bring training to a close, yeah, put them into a game. Kids want to play games. And, and try and relate the small-sided game to, to some of the things that have happened in the middle activities, whether it be striking the, striking the ball. But take them on a journey from providing them fundamental movements around that agility, balance, and coordination, then fundamental skills, and then football skills, and then put them in a game. And again, if we're doing that, they'll be successful whatever sports they end up playing in the long term. We hope that's football, but sometimes it may not be. So by having those Agility games, the tagging games at the start, the fundamental skill games, it might be even catching and throwing at some stages. We're setting them up for a a lifelong journey in in sport and we hope that's football, but we know it might not always be the case. And then skill acquisition phase. We know 
research shows it's the golden age of mode learning because there's a term of neuroplasticity that the, the, the brain is primed to learn new motor skills. So it's the optimum time to develop skills, but we've got to make sure we're doing it in the context of the game. So as uh, Ian said before, it's about putting them in, in a situation where they've got to select the correct technique given the picture in front of them, uh, and then that's really what makes it a skill. And it's all about developing a solid foundation of the functional game skills. So when they move through into a youth framework, we can start then working on how they apply the game skills in a team environment and operating within a unit and in between units. So what I want to touch on is through, I guess, my own journey, through education, through being involved with club and, and federation programs. Um, and there's different methodologies. And what I'm going to talk about is just one methodology that I – uh, have used and, and see the benefit of, and it's applying the whole part whole approach. So there might be some of you that are familiar with it, it might be new for others. But the concept is there's three stages. You practice the whole skill. So you put the player in the game and you allow them to practice and bring the skill to life within a game context so they can complete the, the, the movement and the execution of it. And then what actually allows you to do if you're setting up practice and this is your first activity, it actually allows you as the coach to observe, to judge how do I need to progress? Do I need to progress the practice? Or actually are they, because they're coping, or actually are they struggling? Is the challenge point, I think, too hard? Actually, I need to regress the activities that I have planned. So it allows you to work out the challenge point of, of the next part which for the rest of the session. And then you can take through a series of stages where you can isolate part of the skill. So it might be refining it right back to start with to a technical block yeah. where we're just using the concept of interference to apply passive pressure. And then we can start adding opposition to start increasing the, the challenge point. So at times they'll have direct pressure and then other times they might not. And then we can start working on specific football actions and how they perceive, decide, and execute. And then once we've done that, it might be one skill component back into a game, back into another skill component, back into a game. Or it could be that we do two or three skill technique components and then finish back within a game. And so, again, you've taken them on a journey and you've progressed them through back into the whole game. So, again, they can action within a game, a full game setting. And again, that gives us a chance to observe and it gives us a chance to see if learning has happened. And in the way that I had it explained to me and that it's really resonated for myself is that when you put them in the game at the start and that's like setting, sowing the seed, you're planting some ideas. Now, especially if you, where you get the game up underway and you use some constraint or point system to bring one particular football action to life. Then as you go and break it down into the parts, and use interference into skill practices, you're starting to water and provide the learning with some nutrients. And if you do a good job, and that's where it comes back to the craft of the coach, if you nurture the practice correctly, increasing the challenge point or regression the challenge point as it's needed and stepping through from using technique into interference into skill practices, hopefully by the time you get back into the, the whole practice, back into the game, Learning has grown and something has flourished and there's some observable differences. 
And that's the way that you know, I look at it. So sow the seed, look after it, provide it the nutrients and the feedback that it needs, and then something learning will happen and players will grow. So what it might look like on a training pitch is we put them into a small-sided game. It could be a 3v3 or a 4v4 to start. And you might provide them some sort of context and some sort of point system to bring a behavior that you want to focus on alive. And this is where, as the coach, as I said before, we just observe where are they at? What's retained from last time we've done the session on, on the selected football action or core skill? And it can set you up for the rest of the practice, whether you need to progress it quite quickly and increase the challenge point or whether they've not quite retained what you thought they would and you might need to regress some of your practice back. Then you can start focusing on a, on a football technique activity. And this is where we can use interference. And even if it's just players completing football actions moving through each other, there's still some perception, decision and execution. But there's a lot of execution. And if players are moving and the pitch is constantly changing, they're going to get repetition of the technique but without repetition. So they'll be learning to have striking the ball or passing and they're playing a variety of passes. It's not the same pass every time. And this is where we can prompt. So we might coach over and we might give little prompts for the players to, to tune them in. So it might just be like if it's about receiving and first touch forward, it might just be making sure that we're standing on a skateboard, we're side on. You have a decision now. So after the technique, activity using interference, you can go now and progress and add more opposition to, to have more direct pressure. Uh, to challenge the player, or you could go back into another game. So you could go technique, skill, where we teach, and then finish with a game. Or another way you could do it is go from a technique into a game, into a skill activity, back into a game. And so again, there's, there's different ways you can do it, because sometimes by going technique, they get to then try and apply it in a game setting. You bring them back out. You bring down the challenge point, you bring down the level of perception, decision, execution into a skill activity where you can then put them back into the game itself. And again, it's using constraints or point systems to bring behavior alive that you've worked on throughout the session. And that's really when now you as the coach can assess how well you taught tonight and how well that you guided your players through the activities. And it's what's the basis of, of, of the game intervention game, the gig methodology. It's the, it's the same approach. Now, I was lucky enough to, to spend some time last year on uh, OFC FIFA Coach Education Workshop. Uh, and the interesting thing about the context of, of Oceania football is you've got New Caledonia and you've got uh, Tahiti, which are actually member associations that are still governed by the French Federation. So I spent some time sitting down with a technical director from Tahiti on a, on, a, on a B license course that I was delivering. And then at an Oceania workshop, we actually had uh, staff come in from the French Football Federation and outline their phases of development and their coaching methodology. And the one that they used, it's clearly whole part, whole learning is what they use through their skill acquisition, their equivalent of a skill acquisition and into their game training phase. So again, it's a common approach that's used by lots of other member associations around the world. And this is what it might look like on, on a training night. So it's some sort of small side of game, 3v3s or 4v4s. And we can use maybe an attacking overload or a neutral or a joker player. 
to allow the, the players to execute the action more often. So here we might put them in, it might be a, a striking the ball passing activity where they're playing end zone or line ball, where they're building, they just get to play, and you might just hone in on a point system to bring a particular behavior alike. So it might be here that if you can enter the end zone via one, two, you get five points. If you can enter the end zone just by building up play and passing and moving in, that's one point. And again, it allows the coach to observe what's retained from last time we focused on this core skill. We then bring them into a technique activity, which, you, which uses a, a level of interference because players are moving through each other. So it might be that I'm sure lots of coaches have done this one before, where there's two target players and the red team are moving with the ball between one target player to the other, and at the time the blue team's doing the opposite. Because they're playing through each other, there's a level of interference and a level of perception decision execution. And when you're doing this one with junior players, you always see that player who strikes the ball and it hits one of the opposition players because of that actually taking in the, the picture around them. And it's really focusing on, on how to pass, when to pass, and then you could also additionally put in the speed of pass. And as players are moving and passing, we've got repetition of our core skill, but it's not the same decision and execution each time. We then can progress now and we've, we've gone from interference and now we've got direct pressure with opponents and we, again we can manipulate that challenge point and the level of pressure between the number of defenders that we, we have. And if we increase the defenders, we increase the pressure or if we remove defender, we, we, uh, we decrease the challenge. And again, a number of coaches have played this one before. So we're playing end-to-end -end, so our practice has a direction and it's about combining to play through or around defend, defenders or opposition to go from one end to the other. But when we're designing skill activities, it's important that in skill acquisition, yes, we are focusing on the attacking moment. And if we are focusing on the attacking moment, there's going to be hidden learning on the defending moments and the defending core skills. If we're designing a really purposeful practice for, for skill development, it's also got to have the transitional moments of the game alive. So actually, all four moments of the practice are alive and we've got to think about in a practice where there's opposition. When the opposition win the ball, how do they score and does it replicate the game? So if we're playing a 4v2 with target players, if the opposition score and the game stops or they pass the ball out, the transition moment is lost. So we can still in the skill acquisition phase, we can use hidden learning to bring the transition moment to life, but it won't be the focus what you're teaching on, but it still needs to be evident. So in an activity, we're playing 4v2, it might be if the defender wins it in one half, they've got to turn and play forward uh, to the target player down the other end. So that might be it's a, a defender's won it, and they're playing forward into a player in one of their midfield units. Make sure that a design brings situations of life that as they would happen in a game. And then last, we bring them into a small side of the game as close to the big game as possible with all the decisions being made. And again, is here how we can use constraints or rules or points to bring particular behaviours to life. And again, if you're using point system and if the player's action, the core skill, and it leads to a goal, that might be worth more points than a normal, just a, a normal goal. So in here, if they build through each third, it might be it's going to be worth more points or they get bonus points. 
which is really going to help stimulate and keep them focused on that behavior. And then challenge players. It's a competitive environment. Keep the score, but give them a chance to reflect on their own performance and ask them to come up with strategies about maybe how they can change the game amongst themselves to be able to execute and what combination play and be able to score, score more points. Give them the ownership of coming up with strategies about how to develop. So I'll do as pause there and, and then ask any questions about what's being presented there, Glenn. Question from Owen Swift. Um, do you feel the way we coach males and females is different and should it be? Uh, I think the answer is yes and no. Where I've, I've, I've spent time before and if we look at, there are, there are some differences uh, between male and female players and, and maybe not so much at the junior age, but maybe more they get into youth and senior football. But I, I don't think we can always think that a concept that sometimes might apply in male football will, will directly transmit into female football. But I think that's more the youth and the, and the senior phase where it comes back to the social-emotional approach um, that you take. I think research shows often that female players often will enter the game later um, and might, some, some of them will often might not enter the game until the skill acquisition phase. So I think it's about knowing the stage and where your player is at and applying the right approach for them. So it might be that if you've got a, a female team where a lot of them have just entered the game at, at 10, you might still go and work on some of the things that you might have done in the discovery phase. And again, it's about finding the right approach for the players that you, you've got. And there's no hard and fast rules. But again, research tells us that sometimes players will and the female players will enter the game a little bit later than, than male players. Thanks, Alan, Thanks, for that question. Uh, from Sean Darcy, with whole part whole, I found that allowing players to choose what they want to work on themselves in the part section at times has benefits. Yeah. It takes a while for them to understand they're in control but work. So a statement, question within a statement, really. Yeah, yeah, and I would agree. And, again, what you could actually do is if you start them with a, the same start game and finish game, you might actually have three or four activities that you go, well, here's some activities. What ones do you want to do? And give the choice for them and bring them into the learning. But it's like everything, you know. When something's new, it might be uncomfortable and it takes them a while to settle into it. But again, once they get used to it, we can really harness that power of, of exploration and then giving them the ownership for their own learning. But it takes time and I've got to get used to it just as a coach has to get used to delivering it. Uh, Ian, if you want to come off mute, just to ask your question. All right, thanks, Glenn. Uh, Alec, with, we don't want to teach technique in isolation, but at the moment, our players are in social isolation. Yeah. So what activities do you suggest what activities do you suggest that we should be talking to the players about doing? Yeah, uh, great question. I think it's really provident, and that's what the next section of um, of the presentation is going to be. It's because if we've got them on a on a training night, we've got to make use of the team and and bring that interference or that skill practice alive to recreate a game scenario and manipulate the challenge point uh, for the player around the number of opposition and 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 the, and the amount of pressure. Where it's when they're in their own environment, if we get things around intrinsic motivation, we embrace role modeling behavior, that's where we can really help um, engage the player to do their own technical work 
where they just get repeat actions of execution. Um, and something I'll talk about in a, in a minute, it's about harnessing the power of um, self-determination theory. And it really remakes, relates around how we embrace them and bring them into the ownership of the design and the activities. And it's really embracing that intrinsic motivation and the relationship between the two. So it's going to be what I'll focus on next and, and show you at the end a clip um, of, a, of a colleague I have operated in the club who I think's harnessed it really, really well. Um, and if it's powerful, it just skyrockets player learning and involvement. So, yeah, it's what we'll focus on next. Okay, thanks. Okay, it's almost like I, I set Ian up to give me a segue, so uh, I'll make that money transfer later on. So really, again, it's what we focus on. So how do we keep players and, and harness players to continuate the learning within their own environments uh, and especially around activities outside of a formal practice structure? And it's so, so powerful. So... This is Nova Scotia. This is Cole Harbor. This is my town. This is my house. This is my mom and dad. This is my basement. Wow. So this is where you spend all your time as a kid, eh? Yeah, this is it. That's the famous drive you used to shoot in all the time? Yeah. Well, when I missed. Yeah. That's right. It's pretty beat up, eh? How about you shoot one in there? Yeah, sure. First one in nine? Yeah. You got it. You're going down. <laughs> Do you want to shoot first or second? First. This is where he and his friends spend hours. Woo! One, nothing. I like that. Do celebrate while I'm first, you know? Practice and play. Oh my god. Oh my god. Two in a row. Can you just make out games? How many props you can do in the net or how many plays you can do in the net? Good response right there. So again, a, a video that I've, I, I was first exposed to maybe 
or three or four years ago where I think just harnesses the power of play. And then again, it's if the, if the players, like you saw there, it just becomes part of what they do. And as you heard the parents explain, it just became the background noise to, to the household life. And, um, and again, it's never breaking the window. Um, and it's just, it's just what the player does. And it's that accumulation of additional hockey hours in that case, or football hours within their own context. And it's about how, how we engage the player creates that environment. I think why, why it's important, so, you know, there's lots of talk and there's been lots of debate, and so I'll really leave the question for you, but, you know, what do we need to have to really establish football culture in Australia? Where well, I think it was uh, one of the, the series with Optus and, and the golden generation of, of Socceroos the other day, where I think it was Mark Badoof who was talking about, well, it was just where they went. They, w- and they went to the football club and they just... We were outside and they were playing with their mates and it's, it became, it was just part of their life. Um, and it's so, so powerful. We know that typically a, se- a season here is somewhere around six months, but, you know, there's, there's seasons and areas which are even shorter than that and there's other programs which will extend it out a, a little bit longer as well. But uh, typically, yeah, we're working with our players for half of the year. And if we're working on that concept, it's about accumulation of, of training hours. So if we're working with a player, six months of the year, and if we're working with them twice a week with excluding games, we're looking at some somewhere over 780 accumulative training hours uh, over that 10-year period. And if we're working with them slightly more three times a week, yeah, we're looking at about 1,800 uh, accumulative training hours. And then obviously you've got the, the, uh, game, the games on top of that. But we know that maybe in some more established football nations, the season length's typically somewhere around nine months. Uh, and obviously with the player base that some football nations have, they have a higher quality and higher frequency of training. And it's about how do we, how do we replicate and how do we enhance that in our, in our own setting. And home play is definitely one we can help. And then from research from articles that I've, I've found and I've read, you know, that you're looking at a player who comes the Barcelona Academy over the 10 years, they, they accumulate about 2,900 practice hours. The Aspire Academy in Qatar, uh, a research study there has found that players will experience about 5,000 training hours. And then research, which is a little bit old now, but uh, research showed that you know players coming through Premier League's academies are somewhere around 7,000 hours in a 10-year training period. So again, how do we match and, and again if we've only got players six months of the year two to three times a week well it's got to be we've got to engage them to, to train uh, and accumulate hours on their own either in by themselves or within settings at school with their friends and so this is information which was taken from the sports australia website and again one of the things is about harnessing the power of role modeling uh, and i'll tell you in, in a second why I've got the, uh, the, the logo for Italian 90 up there. But again, we know that observational learning is a valuable tool for, for aiding skill development. So get them, and it occurs when, when players, male or female players, watch their sporting heroes and then go out and try and imitate the techniques and mannerisms. Yeah, and it's been shown in research to be a common trait of elite athletes and they sort of diligently observe and study what their, what their idols and role models are doing, and then they'll go out and try and put it into action themselves. And we can see how YouTube 
this can be such a powerful tool that they'll see something on the YouTube channel and they'll try and get out, get them out in the backyard and try and work out how to do it themselves. But don't underestimate its power. Yeah, so we want to encourage and foster players to watch live games, whether it be local club level, whether it be NPL level, whether it be A-League level, or whether it be English Premier League, Eurodivisie, the Bundesliga. Get them watching football. And then try and focus them and get them to imitate the things that they see and the mannerisms that their, their, their sporting idol, idols do. So again, try and harness that power of imitation you know, get them to be, tonight I'm going to be like um, Rooney. Tonight I'm going to defend like Ferdinand or I'm going to play like Gaza. Get them to, to imitate the people that you see or, or they saw uh, junior football years. And it, again, support their interest and craving for more information. So I'll go through now. Italian 90 was the first major tournament that I remember watching. Uh, I think it's about eight years of age. Uh, and I, I vividly remember, and it's really around the semi-finals the most, was getting up, and I don't know what time it was, it was in the middle of the night and watching the games, and then going to school the following day and being Gary Lineker and being Paul Gascoigne, being Roberto Baggio and recreating the penalty shootouts and recreating what we'd seen on TV. And I think that's something we can harness and that we can really bring to life with our players. Because to do that, but we have to harness the power of intrinsic motivation. And if we really want people to fall in love with our game, there's got to be in a moment of ignition. There's got to be something that grabs their attention and they think, yes, football's for me. And we can really make sure we try and do that during the discovery phase. Really capture that imagination, capture that they're enjoying, they're having fun, and that fun has a football context. And then as time goes, because they're enjoying themselves, they'll remain, they'll fall in love with football. Because there's no, there's no magic formula for developing special players. And a lot of players that will reach the top, it's because of factors around intrinsic motivation. Because they didn't receive any special genes from birth. There was a drive for them to challenge themselves and a drive for them to keep learning outside a formal environment. Because every world-class performer has a history of playful practice and it started at a very young age. And again, it's, it's got to be purposeful practice and if they're going to do it in their own time or with their mates at school, it's got to be self-driven. It's something we can't force on them. So intrinsic and sustained motivation has got to be at the core. If we really want to be a top performer, there's got to be that in, intrinsic love and that deep love for the game. Um, and that will generate players to do additional activity in their own time. Because this is what often we see. We only see the, the top performers. We see them, we see, we just see the picture at the top. What we don't actually see is all the dedication, all the hard work that takes along the way. So the extra practices they've done, that how they've overcome setbacks, that the sacrifice that they've given. And as I keep referring back to, well, it's got to be self-driven and it's got to be intrinsic. And we can set up a player's journey very early on in the discovery phase. If they find that ignition point and they find that love of football, some of this will start taking care for itself. 
What I want to finish on is, is how do we then design home play activities that are really going to engage the player? Well, I think it has a lot to do with self-determination uh, theory, which is an image here. And now this is a, it's a, 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 it's a model where it's not just for, for sport, but it's for just, uh, just society in general and how we operate and how we connect with people in our environment. Um, and it's how we, we grow. And it's, again, it's if we really want to look at why people do things, it's, well, it's the, what's the motives behind it, and it's really without that external influence. And, again, there's three core things that if you really want to engage and motivate somebody, it's about, first of all, they've got to have autonomy. So they've got to have a choice of what they're doing, and that endorses one's own behaviour. Yeah, they've got to have confidence where they've got to feel that the challenge is, is at the right level and that they can feel that they can accomplish something. And then the last one, they've got to relate in this. There's got to be a sense of belonging. They've got to feel connected to the, the environment in which they're operating in. So if we take that and look at it, that sport, it can be come back to the coaches. It's, it's your, your coaching style. It's are you the, the directive coach that's telling the players what to do or are you the coach that's, empowering and setting them up for learning for them to find it themselves. So it comes back to your coaching style. And that will either satisfy or will thwart the, the player's um, psychological need. And that will, will in turn of either satisfying them, will increase motivation, or if it's thwarting it, it will decrease their motivation. So again, our approach, if it's aligned to the, what the players are expecting, how they want to learn, it can increase the motivation or opposite, it can decrease the self-determination and decrease their motivation. And then that in turn will change and enhance or dehance the, the athlete's behaviour um, and it affect what they do. So again, if we really want them to have a lifelong journey in sport, we need to make sure that we're, we're making sure we're taking into account their needs. If we're doing that, we're developing athletes that are self-motivated for their own learning which is going to show in their behaviour. And it's, again, it's about our coaching style that creates learning environments that promotes and encourages having a go rather than avoiding, avoiding showing in competences. So if we look at that in relation to home plan, how we design it, well, again, I think the first process is, is who is in charge of designing the activity? I think we're at a point where there's so many things online available that have come out in the last seven or seven or eight weeks where it's, hey, player, give this a go, where it's just going, here's what I want you to do. And there's one recently where I saw it was very directive and it was like, right, we want you to draw a target on a wall. We want you to see how many times you can hit the target where the player's taken no ownership in the design process. So, again, is it designed by you? Or is it the coach, you set some perimeters for the activity and then engage the players to design it so they get to bring their creativity and imagination to the piece. And then they feel part of the process and then they've got a likelihood that they'll want to be able to do it because they're intrinsically motivated. The competence, and there's a relationship by, by the challenge level where we know if it's too high or too low, that will determine the level of success or failure. And then if we get the challenge level right and we get the right level of success, the players will feel like they've accomplished it. Because if the challenge is low and success is too easy, 
They don't feel like they've accomplished anything. And again, if the challenge is too high and there's failure, there'll be no accomplishment. So it's very much these three will interact with each other. So again, find the challenge point. They find their own challenge point because they're in charge of designing the activity. And then if they design the activity and they feel they've been successful, they feel like they've accomplished something, which again is going to enhance that motivation to continue to be involved. And that's where we get the Goldilocks effect, that the challenge point's not too low, it's not too high, it's just right because they're choosing it for themselves. And then the last one's relatedness. So this is where we need to feel like we're a sense of belonging, we feel connected. And here's now where there's feedback's needed. So the player will go and do something and then they want the coach's feedback, but actually research shows actually their peer feedback is just as important. And we know kids are really uh, used to dealing with social media. And actually, is there a way that they can show and share what they've done to get feedback from yourselves or feedback from others. And it feels them, it connects that feedback loop and it brings them that, that, that sense of connectedness. Thanks very much, Alec. Uh, what a brilliant presentation. And uh, a formal welcome to you to Australia uh, from New Zealand. Uh, you've only been with us for a few months and a lot of those have been in isolation. So we certainly look forward to you being able to get outside and uh, put everything you're <coughs> talking about tonight into, into practice. So. Uh, thanks for your presentation this evening.